I'm assuming some things this morning. I'm assuming you're like me. You believe that the words that are written in Scripture are the words of God. Do you believe that? These are not just good advice. This is not like uh, Dear Abby stuff in a newspaper. This is not like ancient wisdom. This is words from God. So when a Scripture is read... We don't just think it's a good idea, a general guideline. We think this is the word of the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting about today's passage. We're in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation narrative, which is one of, one of the most endearing sections of Scripture because, quite frankly, we are familiar with temptation. It's something we face. It's something we can use help with. And to see that Jesus was gives us some great light on it. But it, here's, here's the other thing is that as you read this this passage about temptation, there are so many other passages that God has provided us, other words from God and other sections of Scripture that just come alive because of this section. Scripture is its own best interpreter. You know what that means? It's like while you're reading it, you're going to be like, oh, it triggers a thought of what I've read somewhere else. It's one of the richest delights of the Christian life is when you're reading something and it brings light from somewhere else. God's shining different spotlights from the same scripture. And so this morning what I wanted to do is I was studying this passage all week long. It's so familiar. I'm like, how can you talk about it in any fresh way? As I was reading this, I got to thinking, and then, oh, that verse and that verse. And here's what it means. Sometimes scripture teaches and somewhere else it illustrates. And when you put them together, pop, it goes like that. That's, that's what Bible study is supposed to be for Christians. That's when it really thrills your heart for those who are attuned to that kind of thing. And then sometimes, some parts of Scripture are a little bit, I don't know if I get that. And then so you read something somewhere else that goes, oh, you put those together, now I get it. It kind of explains itself. And then there are times... When there's a passage of Scripture that you just, you think you know, and then some other verse comes up and you're like, i got to put these together and figure this out. All of this happens in Matthew chapter 4, and I just want to illustrate it some tonight, this morning. I just want to illustrate it a little bit. We're not going to delve deep into everything in this chapter. I, I did once today, once this week, and it was like a 12-page sermon, and I had to scrap it and do something else. So here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to have the Word of God on several screens from different places. I want to read it to you, and I want you to put it in your head. This is an exercise. This is not just for you to sit back and hear a message. I want you to participate. I want you to put these words, download these words in your head, and as we read the story, see if they don't, the, 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 the illustration of the chapter doesn't trigger these other things. So here's the first one. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, later on in the New Testament. Therefore, he, talking about Jesus, had to be made like his brothers and sisters, us. He became one of us. Jesus is our brother, we call him, because he was human. You believe that, church? He became human. Now, he was still divine and human. I don't try to, I, I acknowledge both of those, and I don't try to make them make sense necessarily. In every respect, in every way of your life, Jesus came like you, right? So that, for the purpose of, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He could not be high priest without becoming one of us. But he is our high priest He's like this all the time. And for two reasons, he does two things. He had to be made like us 
for two reasons. One is to propitiate the sins of the people. That's a fancy word that means so that he could offer forgiveness. So our Savior came to be like us, and because he was like us and yet sinless, he is able to make atonement for our sins. But secondly, he suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. It's not just that he's offering atonement for when we make mistakes. He's given us power for when we face temptation in those moments. That's what Hebrews 2, 17. So I want you to remember this. He was made like us in every way, and he suffered through temptation so that he could atone for our sins and be a source of encouragement for us in temptation. That's the first one. Not all of them are going to be this long. Here's the second one. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He doesn't look at us and go, what's wrong with you people? Fix yourself. He doesn't do that. One in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. Do you really believe this, church? Jesus was tempted in every way like you are, yet never chose to sin crazy, isn't it? That is why we're here on the first day of the week worshiping him. He faced all that and chose rightly every single time. He's our savior. Got that? All right. Oh, back up. I forgot to finish the rest. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We can go before him, and he sympathetically helps us. He doesn't go, I don't get you people. Why can't you get this right? No, he's there sympathetically giving us help. Next screen. In the days of his flesh, while Jesus was human, remember, these are the words of God. Give him great gravity and weight, okay? He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. When he came down here and became human, he learned something. He learned what obedience is. You know what obedience is? You follow God when there are other options. He followed God when there were plenty of other options he could have chosen. That means he learned that choosing God's way, you will suffer if you do that. All right, that's what he wants us to know. Next one. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God, there's a test on this verse, so listen. These are the words of God, right? God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives forth death, brings forth death. True or false, God cannot tempt you. There's some tentative replies right now. Did you not read the verse I just gave you, right? It's on the screen. How many know God cannot be tempted? Is that easier? God cannot be tempted, true or false? True. Does he tempt us? No. God doesn't tempt. Okay, next screen. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, or as one version says, we are not unaware of his schemes. Scripture tells us we know Satan's after us. We know how he'll come. I just want you to know that verse. Next verse. All in the world, notice the three things in italics, desires of the flesh, 
desires of our eyes, we see something and got to have it. And the pride of life, whatever it is you define life, we have a pride in having a lot of it. Pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. I just want you to know this verse. These are the things that lead us astray. And one more, I think one more. These things took place. Now, before this, he gave a lot of references to Old Testament stories that you know, you grew up knowing. All these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We look back at the children of Israel. He's looking back at the children of Israel in the wilderness, and he says, these things took place as examples for us. We need to study our forefathers in the wilderness. Need to look at them. You need to study them because we're going to be tempted just like they were. So don't be idolaters as some of them were, he says. Sat down and rose up to play, right? We, we do not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell on a single day. Don't put Christ to the test like they did. You see this? We look back at that and say, don't be like they were. These things happened to them as an example, written down for our instruction, who live at the end of time. Do you get that? Those things in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers in Deuteronomy weren't nailed to the cross so that they don't have no value to you anymore. Those things are for us to look at and go, we are just like they are. We better be careful because we could do the same things. And they're there to give you strength and insight into yourself. And the conclusion of all that, no temptation's overtaken you that's not common to, to people. How many, listen, if you've got a thought in your head that says, you know what, I'm going through something nobody else is going through, it's a lie. If you go, I'm struggling with this and nobody else, I can't tell anybody because there's nobody else struggles with this like I do, that is a lie from the devil, okay? And it's going to keep you in darkness and it's going to make you keep it secret and not let you expose it to the light because you think there's nobody who understands this. I'm the only one going through it. That is a lie. There's no temptation you face that is not common to humanity. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted. Now, hold it just a minute. We got the promise that God won't tempt you, and now with this verse, God will not let you be tempted more than you can bear. So don't read, God won't tempt you, that you can't be tempted. God will let you be tempted, but he's not the one tempting you. He won't tempt you, but he'll let you be tempted. But even when he does, he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He's going to provide you a way of escape that you can endure it. There's always an escape hatch around here somewhere. I want you to say that in your head. In fact, I want you to say it with me. There's always an escape hatch somewhere. You ready? There's always an escape hatch somewhere. There's always here. I'm facing something. There's no way to get out of it. Scripture says, God's word that is always true says to you, God's put an escape hatch somewhere. It's like you're a little cartoon and you're in trouble. No, God draws a little escape hatch and you can get out if you want to. You got to choose it. But I'm telling you, he says, I'm not going to tempt you, but you're going to be tempted and I'm going to make sure there's always a way out for you to choose. Now, all that stuff said in different places. And I want you to keep that in your head because we're going to throw these, verse, these, these screens with these verses up there. We're not going to read them every time. I'm just going to throw them up there and say, do you remember this? Do you remember this? Because the word of God is here. 
for us to use it and to give ourselves strength and ammunition when we're facing temptation. But often, we're just not putting this stuff together. We've got to learn as Christians, let's put our stuff together and put God's ammunition to work for us. And so we go into the story of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Next screen. Now just, this is weird, right? Jesus was just baptized at the end of chapter 3. God came out and articulated out loud for everybody, this is my beloved son. And he anointed him with the Holy Spirit as embodied by that dove. And immediately the Spirit leads him into the wilderness in order to be tempted. The Spirit led him to be tempted. If you are walking in the steps of the Spirit, will he lead you into temptation-filled places? We often think, well, just walk in the ways of the Spirit. And if you walk in the way of the Spirit, you won't enter temptation. That's not true. God wants you to experience temptation. He's leading Jesus, and he leads him straight into an atmosphere where the devil is, and he's going to be tempted, and that's where the Spirit wanted him. Crazy, isn't it? Now, here's what's weird for those of you who are like word people, strange word people like Gary James. I think he made up his words as he lived his life. The same word for temptation is the same word for testing in Scripture. Okay, so... Is my experience temptation or is it testing? Well, here's the answer. First, it is a test when the intention is for someone to succeed. If you're a good teacher, you give your, t- your students tests that they can succeed at. You do not give them chapter 23's test after they've read chapter 2. Not if you're a good teacher, unless you really want to discourage them. And I've had some teachers like that. If you're like that, shame on you. But it's a test if you intend for them to succeed. And so the Holy Spirit, what was he intending to happen in the wilderness? He's intending him to face the same things Israel faced, only he wins. But it's a temptation when the intention is for someone to fail. I want them to fail. In this story, the devil wants Jesus to fail. The Spirit wants Jesus to succeed. But the it in both of those sentences is the same circumstance. The it is the same. Jesus in the wilderness facing these temptations. For God, it was for him to succeed and demonstrate for the world what a son of God does. Because Israel failed, he needs Jesus to go into the wilderness, face the same things Israel failed, and him succeed. God wants him to succeed. There's something about us living our lives, and we can go to Bible class, and we can answer the Bible questions, we can answer the Bible quiz things, and we can hold up our hands and marvel the teacher and do great at lads to leaders and win a trophy, but if when you go into real life, when you have options, you choose the wrong options, then you failed being a child of God. God wants you to succeed. He wants you to know that when you get out there and God tests you, and the testing is always multiple choice, which I hate. 
I hate multiple choice. But God's testing is always multiple choice. Here's something that's facing you, and here's four different ways you can meet it. A, B, C, or D. Some of those are okay, and some of those aren't. And if you're a child of God, the ones that are, are not right, you dismiss, and you choose only the ones that are right. God wants you to succeed, so He tests you. He wants to know when those moments come up in life and you have legitimate options, when you have actual options you can choose that are wrong, you bypass them and only choose the things that God would have you. That's when you know your sonship, your daughtership is fulfilled complete. That doesn't mean you can't be forgiven. It just means we need to learn to choose more out of our identity as children of God than we do out of our humanity. Very same thing. When you face something where you've got really attractive options that are wrong, when you choose the right, it's a test you pass and you grow in it. And if it's not, it's a temptation that you fail. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking, not common to man. What Jesus knew, he didn't go out in that wilderness and just get taken over and just like, I didn't see that coming, got sabotaged by the Spirit because he didn't know the, the, the devil was there. He knows. He knows it, and he knows this truth. Now, I know it's not written until after Jesus, but Jesus knows this truth. These temptations are common, but he knows something else. Next screen. He also knows that Satan has certain schemes and certain things that he's going to try on him. And he knew that before he got out there. And so he was ready for Satan when he was there. And this is what the anatomy of this uh, temptation is. Here's how it always works. This is the way it goes with Jesus here, and it's the way it is with us. Number one, we have an inner desire for something. There's something in us that we really want. Satan comes after him because he wants food. Why would Jesus want food? His body wants food. His body craves food. He's been fasting for 40 days. His body wants food. It's a temptation. Secondly, he wants a relationship with God, right? Next, next one. There's this draw. This draw toward meeting that need of the body in a way that doesn't satisfy God. So when you do something you want, but it's not what God wants, that's the thing. To meet what you want with something that God wants for you. When you can join those two together, it's fine. But when you want something that when you get it is not what God wants for you, it's called sin. And so here comes Satan. I know you're hungry. And I know you're on a fast from God, and God's going to decide when this fast is over. But why don't you just short-circuit that? Why don't you just meet this desire of your body however you want to, instead of waiting for God? How many times does your sin, is your sin rooted in this? There's a desire I have, and I'm going to meet it in a way that pleases me, but I know it's not a way that pleases God. That's a huge number of our sins. I'm bored. I don't want to be bored. Okay, there's lots of ways to meet that. I can go serve somebody. I can read something good. I can do something healthy. I can go uh, fellowship somebody. Or I can go online and go to this website and I'm no longer bored. 
You've got to meet the legitimate need of your body with a legitimate God-approved means of meeting that. And, and you do that and you're fine, right? And that's what happens to him the second one. The third one is similar to that too. There's all sorts of things that he's doing here, but one of them is he's quoting Psalm 91 saying, you know, when, God, when you're God's person, he's going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. So here's what you do. Why don't you throw yourself down and let God just miraculously save you? Why don't you just let God, and you're entitled, you're God's son, so go ahead and, and just come up with this artificial thing, these conditions for your belief. I'll believe in you if you do this for me. And many Christians do this. I'm going to believe in you, God, if you meet all these desires I have, you become a spoiled brat rather than a faithful son. And then the third one. The third one is a case where he says, you're going to get these kingdoms of the world anyway, so why don't you just take a shortcut? Instead of going through the cross, why don't you just worship me, and I'll give them to you. You won't have to go through all the pain and the self-denial of your life. You can just let me give them to you. These temptations should sound similar to you, familiar to you. It is the desires of the flesh, what I want. The desires of the eyes, what I see, all the kingdoms of the world. It's the pride of life. I'm God's child, and I'm going to make him give me stuff to keep me faithful to him. These temptations were so familiar to Jesus, he knew they were coming. He knows the way, and yet he refused to do that. Here's the third part of the anatomy of temptation. There's this inner desire that you have. There's this draw towards something that's not pleasing to God. And you've got to choose, am I going to do that or not? The response you need to give is one of two things. You're going to face this this week as a Christian somewhere in your life. You're going to have something in you that you just want to have fulfilled. You're going to look out there and you're going to see some legitimate means of doing it that are maybe satisfying, maybe not. And then there's some illegitimate ones, some things that don't please God, but they do please you. And the question is going to be, what response are you going to give? And Jesus knows there's two responses you can give, only two. You either suffer or you sin. You either hold out and outlast that temptation and you outlive that temptation. You either say, I'm going to deny myself. I'm not going to do that. I, I know I want to and I know it would be easy and it's quick and it's abundant in my culture and maybe everybody else does it, but I'm not going. I'm going to say no to myself and outlive it and do only what God wants me to. That's called suffering. And Jesus did this in his life because he's the only one ever who went through every temptation and outlasted the whole thing he went through the entire life cycle of every sin every temptation that faced him every draw towards sin and he outlasted it in faithfulness to god every single one of them we short circuit it by sinning how did he do that how did he do that that's kind of that's kind of the thing we need from him the most for one thing, he was studying some scripture there, right? There's this passage. I want you to notice the next one, next screen. Hebrews 2. He was made like us. He was our brother. He was made like us. He's our brother. He's also our high priest, and he never failed. We need him to be both of these. We need him to be both, and he demonstrates this in the passage. And here's the first one. He's sitting there thinking of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about this. Next screen. Keep going, yeah. 
So there's no temptation. He starts looking at the Old Testament, but he's not looking at just any Old Testament passage. He's looking at Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is this passage where at the end of the wilderness failure of Israel, as they're about to go in the promised land, Moses gathers them like a teacher does. When a whole class fails the test, the teacher will gather that t- class together and say, here's, here's where you went wrong. I want to show you the correction. And so it corrects them all, right? And here's Moses saying, here's in the wilderness where we failed, and here's what we should have learned. And because of that, um, he has this whole speech in Deuteronomy about that. And what is Jesus What is Jesus marinating on while he's fasting in the wilderness? All three responses are from Deuteronomy. He goes back into Deuteronomy and he uses it. I don't know if you use Deuteronomy lately, but here's the thing. Here's Jesus living in what we call the New Testament, right? That time period of Matthew, right before the actual covenant starts. So so he's living in the New Testament time, but what is he drawing on for strength for this is Deuteronomy. And he takes those words and he puts them in his heart and he quotes them and he brings them out like a sword and he slashes Satan up, right? And he suffers because he endures it all. Now with all this, I want to just cut to the chase here at the end. How do we call upon Jesus as our brother and as our high priest? How can we resist the temptations that we face? What's some actual practical guidelines from Jesus from Matthew 4 that you can put into effect even this week to be able to suffer through, and that's what you'll be doing, suffer through temptation and not fail? Number one, know who you are. You're a child of God. This means God's saved you. He loves you. filled you with his spirit, he's given you his word, and you have the inspiration and the motivation of knowing I am in the family of God. Jesus knew who he was, and it caused him to act higher. Secondly, follow the Spirit's lead. The Spirit led him into wilderness, led him to temptation, and also through temptation. So those steps of the Holy Spirit will not keep you safe all the time will not keep you clinically away from all kinds of temptation. You will be tempted even as a spirit follower of God. But if you keep following the steps of the Holy Spirit, he will lead you through that too. Number three, know your scripture. But not just any scripture. Not any scripture will do. It's not all created equal. I don't know if you're a scripture memorizer or not. I don't know if you're a person who kind of like, Start your day with a five-minute devotional. That can be helpful. But at some point in time in your life, there is like a marinating in Scripture stuff that, that you need to do. And here's one of the things that's important to know. Not all Scripture is equal. Yes, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for all sorts of things, but not all Scripture is useful for your fight that you have in your life with your temptations. We all have different ones. We all have similar ones and we all have different ones. Jesus wasn't just randomly meditating on Scripture. I don't think Habakkuk was going to help him. I don't think Malachi was going to help him much. I don't think really Proverbs and its general wisdom literature was going to give him much help. So what he chose to do in the wilderness 
being tempted by Satan was to look at Deuteronomy, which was about Israel being in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, failing, and what they should have learned. And so he knew this is my life setting right here. This is where I'm living. I'm going to meditate on this. I'm going to be ready for Satan when he comes. I don't know that all verses will be helpful to you if you're an envious person. If you struggle with jealousy, if you struggle with stealing, if you struggle with, I don't know, any number of things, you're you a gossiper or a slanderer, I don't think every verse is going to help you with that, but you find those verses and those passages that call, talk about that and how God helps you overcome that, memorize those, put those in your heart and use them for the times when those things come up. Not all scripture, don't just say, Jesus wept, that's not going to help you a lot when you're drawn to gossip. Find the ones that are most important and meditate on those and study those out. And the last one's this. Be Satan aware. All the way through this passage, he's called the devil. Every single time until the third temptation. At the third temptation, Jesus names him. Jesus calls him by name and says, Be gone, Satan. He knows Satan's schemes. He knows Satan's ultimate design. He knows where he's coming from and what he's trying to do. And he also knows his name. Once in a while in your life, you're going to be really in the midst of a temptation. And you're going to know that Satan's around there. The devil is around there somewhere trying to get you to fall. And the best thing you can do is to follow Jesus. Name him. Tell him to go away. Say it out loud. That's a little weird, isn't it? Is this the only time Jesus did this? Same gospel, Matthew. You go a little further, and there's Satan, or there's Jesus, who is, uh, who's, uh, finally, Peter says, you are the Christ, and Jesus is excited about that. That's a good answer. And he says, yeah, and now I've got to go die and suffer and be rejected and rise from the dead. And Peter says, that's not going to happen. Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. He names it. It's not that Peter is Satan, but his words are from Satan. It's Satan trying to tempt him to not do the will of God. And he says it out loud. Sometimes you need to say to people or say to yourself or driving in your car and that thought keeps coming to your head, you shouldn't be thinking, get away from me, Satan. Say it out loud. Sometimes you might be in a discussion with your wife and have to say it, but be very careful if you do. Could be taken wrong. Say it out loud. Call it what it is. Label it. Drive it. Be gone, Satan, he says, and Satan goes away. We need, we need a, a spirituality. We need a faith. We need a Savior who stands above sin and can give us atonement and forgiveness when we fail. We also need a Savior and a faith that gives us an example of someone who's been there and done that with us and has come out unscathed. We need to worship Jesus because of what he's done. We need to imitate him because of how he lived. We need a savior who's both. And guess what? We've got one. We've got one who not only was facing it all and shows us how to face it, but he's the one who overcame it all, which we will never do. But he overcame it all so that he could forgive us when we do fail. We've got it all. 
and our Savior named Jesus. And this morning, if he's your Savior, then here's the thing that you know. So gather around the table. It's because of what he did for us that when we do fail, it's not fatal. We find forgiveness and sympathy. But you know as a believer, and I'm not trying to earn my own way, I don't even want anybody to think that. I want a little more than that. I want more than forgiveness for my failure. I want power that I can proceed from here and actually experience victory. Anybody else feel that way too? I don't, I don't want to just be, oh, that's okay, that's okay, you can be forgiven. I want to be forgiven, but I want to be improved. I want to be made capable of actually facing him with the Holy Spirit's power and overcome him. And he's provided that too. Our Savior's done both. The same Lord has done both for us. He is our Savior and our brother, and we need him to be both. And that's because, that's why we gather around the table and observe with our brother and with our Lord what he's done for us. And this morning, if that's who he is, gather around the table with me. Let's gather around the table and celebrate that. And let's ask for forgiveness and let's ask for empowerment. But if you've never done that, if you've never invited him to be your Lord and Savior, you've never invited him to be your brother and your family to provide you the strength that you need, this morning, why not do it? Just say to him, I want you to be my Savior and my brother. And then be immersed in the waters of baptism. And he becomes both. And together we'll live the Christian life, guilt-free but empowered. If that's something you're subject to, make it known now as we stand, as we sing together.